Well, our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 1, and let's see, we we are beginning in verse 39, I believe it is, Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, I invite you to turn your Bible there, page 856 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and I trust if you have God's Word open this morning, you'll find this message easier to engage with as we consider verse by verse what God has to say to us. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to just take that Bible in the pew rack in front of you as our gift to you. I'm excited uh, for this season. I don't know uh, if you enjoy or appreciate the Advent season. I trust you do. It's a great delight uh, to me and my family and all the traditions and the celebrations that uh, accompany it. Uh, we have to work hard, as you do, to make sure that Christ remains the center of our Christmas season, especially with little kids. It challenges for us, and yet uh, we rejoice in making sure that Jesus is central in our family and, and I trust in our faith community. One way we celebrate Christ's Advent, His birth, uh, Christmas, for us as a family, is by giving sacrificially to the cause of international missions. And so I'm excited to once again as a family to participate in our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Every dollar that you give and that, that anyone gives goes 100% to putting our 5,000 southern missionaries overseas that they may proclaim the reason why we're celebrating, that light has come into this world. And I hope and pray that every person in this church, every member certainly of Hamilton Baptist Church would give to this offering and that you would do so sacrificially. Now, some could give more, some could give less, but I hope you all would have participated in it, and one day you'll find out what God did through your stewardship for His namesake and for the nations. And I trust there is no greater investment that you can make than giving to this. I hope you're going to pray about how you can participate in this offering, and certainly we look forward to doing so as a family. Well, you've, by now you found your way to Luke chapter 1. We note here in verse 39, Hear now the Word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leaped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, and as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And Father, we now come to hear from You through Your Word. We thank You for this opportunity that we have today to sit under the Word of God, to let it be our authority, let it guide our thoughts and our beliefs and our actions. 
So we pray that You would give us great insight into it today through Your Spirit and its proclamation that You would help us to know Your Word. And by knowing it, we would know You to a greater degree and we would find great joy and delight. Even like our sister Mary who, who rejoiced in You. Her spirit rejoiced in God, her Savior. That is our great desire today. Through Your Word, You would help us to find our great joy in God, our Savior. That we would magnify the Lord today in our soul. So help us now. As we consider your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The magazine Psychology Today once surveyed 52,000 of their subscribers, asking them how they believe they can find happiness or joy. The amount of responses the magazine received was, was overwhelming to them. They had no idea that so many people would respond to that question. And they categorized the, the various responses. They found out that, that those who uh, were, were poor, the, the number one response as to where happiness will be found was in winning the lottery. So happiness and joy is found in the lottery. I don't know if you've ever had that dream. I'm sure perhaps you have. Many of us have thought about what we do if we won the lottery. I'm not sure it will provide for happiness for you. I don't know if you ever looked at the lives of lottery winners. In fact, there was a man who won $8 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. Within a year, his wife left him, suing him for alimony and child support, in which she was awarded a million dollars. His landlady sued him for 30% of his winnings and won. And his brother-in-law, brother and sister-in-law are now serving time for trying to hire someone to kill him and to get his money. So he is not a happy man. Others who are perhaps on the more wealthy spectrum didn't say they, they don't have enough, they, they are in want, but many of them said the most, the mo, the most predominant response for those on, on that spectrum said they were disillusioned with life. They were um, bored. That there wasn't a meaning in their life. Many others were confused. In fact, one man responded saying, I have listed the reasons I think I've found happiness. Please confirm if I have. No matter who they were or how much they had or where they lived. And they wanted something more, something less, something different. As if the grass is always greener, looking for satisfaction in something that's elusive. I want to talk to you today about a story of joy, a story of delight. And it's not found in the lottery. It's not found in money. It's not found in, in activity. It, it is found in one place, and that is in God. I don't know if you're looking for satisfaction. I trust all of us to some degree are. I, I commend you Christ today that you might find joy and delight in Him. And we see three characters in this story and they've all can't seem to, to have a difficulty to stop praising God. It's just a story filled with this joyful praise, whether it's John's joyful jumping or Elizabeth's exuberant exclamation or Mary's spontaneous song. It is a story of exuberant praise. Of course, we have been looking here in Luke chapter 1, really been following two stories, haven't we? Two stories on parallel tracks, two cousins, two miraculous pregnancies, which will lead to two wonderful births and eventually into two songs of praise. 
It is today in our text that these stories actually intersect with one another, that they come together. And what we see is is really two women touched by God. And and I want to just note that for a moment, that, that if you think about the day in which this was written and who, in the New Testament day, who was marginalized, who was insignificant, well, it was women. And even above that, it was, it was the poor. And even beyond that, it was the barren. And, and who do we see Luke highlighting here in Luke chapter 1? Who do we keep coming back to over and over again? It, it is women, a, a senior citizen perhaps, and a young teenage girl, these, these women. In fact, the only time we've seen a man, he comes off kind of like an oaf, right? He doesn't even know what's going on. And, and we, in fact, just left um, Mary last week, and she had this encounter with this angel Gabriel in her kitchen. And the angel said to her, Mary, even though you are a virgin, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. This young girl is now pregnant and on the road to Judea to visit her Aunt Liz and her cousin John. And it's these three that are going to teach us the joy that is in our praise of our God. In fact, we see in this story here that we should praise Him because He is the Lord. Praise Him because He is the Lord. You know, verse 39, the Bible says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. In other words, Mary left immediately. You notice that? She left with haste. She did not linger there in Nazareth. I don't know if she told her parents. I I hope she did. Um, I don't know if she notified Joseph. All we know is that after Gabriel left, she packed up and she traveled from Galilee, which is the north of Israel, down into Judea, which is in the south of Israel. And it was about a 80-mile journey, or it would take three to four days. This would be somewhat of a, a long journey for someone so young. We think Mary most likely is age 12, 13, maybe as old as 14, but certainly not older than that if everything's going according to the custom. Maybe she took someone with her. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But what he does say in verse 40 is that she came to her cousin's house. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And so in she walks into Zechariah's home and, and she says to Elizabeth, hello, and she greets her. Now, there's a reason why she's here. There's a reason why she's taken this journey. If you remember last week, we considered the, the impact that this pregnancy is going to have upon Mary, the cost in which will inflict upon her. We talked about the fact that she most likely will not get married, perhaps never married. In fact, Matthew will tell us Joseph tried to divorce her when he found out about the baby. Most likely she would be disowned by her parents or at least um, obviously a difficult relationship with her parents. And we do know from John chapter 8 that she was scandalized, that even in her day she was known for being an immoral woman, this young girl who was chaste, and yet everybody thought she had an illegitimate child, Jesus. In John chapter 8 verse 41 tells us as much. They didn't call her the Virgin Mary back then. They most likely called her the harlot Mary. She was not known to be a righteous woman amongst uh, her neighbors. Plus you add, of course, all those costs and then add on to the fact that, that, that she's pregnant, right? Which for a 13-year-old girl who's poor and no medical care, that, that, that adds a burden upon you. And then you add to the fact that she is going to be a first-time mom. And by the way, her child is the son of God. You know, good luck in raising him. And so there's a lot going on in Mary's life, and there's a lot of costs that this angel brings to her. And, and we noted her amazing response recorded in verse 38 when she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And we considered last week this, this submission, this courageous submission that she had. And it is an example to us. 
But do you notice what's missing in verse 38? And certainly submission is there. But I'm not sure how much joy is there. I'm not so sure that she's filled with joy at this. I think she's probably more afraid than joyful. I think, I think sometimes all we can muster is submission to God. Sometimes that's the best we can offer. I will do the right thing, but I don't know why it has to be this way. I don't understand why God chose this for me, but He's God and I submit to Him. I think that's what Mary's saying here in verse 38. It is an amazing statement, but let's not make it what it's not. This is a yielding to God mixed with, I believe, uncertainty and fear. This is why Gabriel would suggest to her that it's probably good for Mary to go visit uh, Elizabeth. There's one person that can relate, one person who might believe her story. And so this is what Mary does. She travels that 80 miles to Aunt Liz's home, confused and scared, not knowing what's going to happen to me, not knowing how is she going to uh, walk this road in which God has chosen for her. I trust filled with a degree of anxiety. And I believe she receives in that home what she did not expect. For we read in verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I I think Liz here is filled with this Holy Spirit and, and she has this prophetic understanding and she declares, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord is in my house? And now put yourself in Mary's position there. Do you not think this is incredible for her to hear? She undoubtedly was thinking, how am I going to convince this this cousin of mine that what I'm telling her is true? And what if she rejects me? What if she kicks me out of her house? What is she going to say? What is she going to think? And yet without a word from Mary's mouth, other than hello, Elizabeth already knows what's going on in her life, and she begins to celebrate this truth. She begins to rejoice in what God is doing in her life. And I, I just see there, Mary, maybe I'm reading too much in there, tears start to fall as her, her Aunt Liz embraces her and tells her, God is here. It's going to be okay, sweetheart. God will carry us through. In fact, I, I, I love this confession that, that Elizabeth uh, utters here in verse, where is it? Verse 41, uh, excuse me, verse 43, that you, Liz knows that she is the, mother of her Lord. And so think about that. So Mary's probably pregnant for about three days. And Elizabeth already knows, one, that Mary's pregnant. And knows, two, that though she's not married, it's a good thing. And knows, three, that she's pregnant with, as she says, my Lord. I think it's an extraordinary statement. I think we need to put Elizabeth's statement up next to John's statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think it should be up with Peter's statement, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, the first person to uh, uh, exalt Jesus and to identify Him as Lord is Elizabeth. She calls Him Lord. In fact, even more extraordinary is the word Lord is typically referred to as, as God. In fact, in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, the word Lord is used 25 times to refer to what we might call the, the, our Heavenly Father or the first person of the Trinity. In fact, Elizabeth will even use that word in verse 45. Note she says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, wait, we've we got to pause here for a moment, don't we? Because she says in verse 43... 
that, that the baby is the Lord. And, and then she says in verse 45 that the one who sent the baby is the Lord. So which is it? Is the baby the Lord or is the one who's sending promised the baby the Lord? Well, you know the answer. Yes! Right? Of course! I mean, the, God is triune, and evidently somehow Elizabeth knows this, and, and she, she recognizes that, yes, God has, the Lord has sent the baby, and the Lord is the baby, and we will, well, how in the world does she know this? Well, we know God is triune, God, Father, and the Holy Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit comes, and He lets her know, according to verse 41, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says it is written, no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so she, she confesses this, confesses that Jesus is Lord. And by the way, she, it's not some calculated, reasoned out confession. This is an exuberant exclamation. You see that there in verse, where is it? In, in, in verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, right? What makes this old lady shout? Well, it's the presence of her Lord. And Liz is just, just over the top. She's freaking out a little bit. She's just shouting. How can this possibly be? My Lord is here. And she, she breaks out. And what I, it looks to me, though, the, my translate, the translator of this Bible doesn't think it, it almost looks like a hymn to me. In fact, she says, well, she starts handing out these blessings. And she says, well, blessed is Mary and blessed is the child. And, and I'm blessed. And, and all who believe God's word is blessed. There's blessings flying in every direction from Elizabeth's mouth. She says, first of all, blessed is the mother of the Lord. Verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so Elizabeth says, Mary is blessed because of this incredible honor which God has bestowed upon her. Now, remember that Elizabeth's been honored. She's now six months pregnant with a prophet who's been announced by the angel Gabriel. And undoubtedly, she's very excited about her own pregnancy and dreaming about what her son would would one day do. But what's extraordinary to me is rather than exalting herself, when Mary walks in with Jesus in her womb, immediately she praises God for what God has done through Mary. He's given her a son. He's given her the Lord. In fact, she says there in verse 42, blessed is the fruit of the womb. Now, of course, she is specifically referring to Jesus. um, But far be it for me to miss an opportunity to point something out to you here about what God thinks about children. I don't know if you you heard this, but, but God's word tells us that children are a blessing. Right? Elizabeth tells us, blessed is the fruit of the womb. I don't know if you've noticed this in Luke. There's just babies everywhere. Right? And maybe you realize, okay, now I understand why we're studying Luke. Because God keeps showing up and giving babies out. And there's a baby here and a baby there. And we're not even to the births yet. Right? And there's just babies. And God obviously loves babies. And he loves children. And he blesses uh, Mary with this child in addition to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth recognizes that. But she goes on and not only says, blessed is the mother of the Lord, but blessed are those who are near the Lord. Look in verse 43. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. You see her awe here, her, her humility. How is this even possible? I'm unworthy to be in his presence. Now, she hasn't seen him live yet. She hasn't heard him teach yet, hasn't watched him walk on water or raise the dead or calm the storm or die on the cross or be raised from the dead himself. And she's already worshiping him. She's praising him. And, and she's not the only one praising their Lord because who else is there but John, her son, 
In fact, while Elizabeth is shouting, John is jumping. I don't know if you know. In fact, he started it all. Look at verse 41. And Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary and the baby leaped in her womb. And so John begins to jump at the presence of his Lord, even though he is in the womb. Of course, we know from earlier, our earlier study that John's the forerunner. His whole job is to point out the Messiah, the Savior. And so the Messiah shows up in his house and he begins to prophesy. It's him. He's here. I mean, John, John, never mind the fact he's nine inches tall and weighs less than two pounds. Right? He's the only man I trust has used the pulp, the, the womb for a pulpit. And yet he's there he is preparing people for Christ. He wants his mom to know that the Messiah is here. Now note this. John's been in uh, uh, Elizabeth's womb for six months. Jesus has been in Mary's womb for three to four days. And I want you to see what God thinks about life in the womb. No matter how early it is. Both Mary and John understand that Jesus is here and he is alive and he points to him. Amen. Indeed, you think, well, how in the world can John do this? Well, you look back in chapter 1 and verse 15. Remember when Gabriel was speaking to John's father and he said there, For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Note this. Even from his mother's womb. So why does he need the Holy Spirit in the womb? Well, he's going to begin his job in the womb. He's going to begin to prophesy even before he's born. And so John's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And we saw in verse 41 that Elizabeth is now filled with the Holy Spirit. And she is able to interpret John's movement. Verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now she's felt John move. She's felt him stretch and kick and somersault and all of that, but something's different here. John is leaping here, and she understands by God's Spirit he is leaping for joy. He's worshiping. John is jumping for joy that his Lord is near. Elizabeth is shouting, I can't believe this is going on. John is jumping. And then you look in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And and so Mary's uh, rejoicing, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I mean, you have Elizabeth shouting, and you have John jumping, and Mary breaking out in spontaneous song. It's like a charismatic church service happening there, right? The Holy Spirit's falling on everyone, and they are just worshiping and finding great delight and and blessing. Blessing God. In fact, Elizabeth says, Blessed are those who believe in the Lord, verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, we know she has Mary in mind, doesn't she? Right? Mary's blessed. Why? Why does, why does Elizabeth think Mary's blessed? It's not just because she's been given this child. She's blessed, according to verse 45, because she believed that she was given this child. She believed God in contrast to who? Remember? Zechariah, who don't you think is sitting in the corner there, unable to speak, unable to hear, just smiling, having no idea what's going on whatsoever. I think Liz is staring straight at Zechariah when she says, blessed are those who believe in the Lord. Believe what he says. Of course, it doesn't say Mary there. Verse 45, it doesn't say, blessed are you Mary but she uses the third person. Blessed is she. she. She generalizes it because not only is Mary blessed because she believes the Lord, but all who believe that God will fulfill His promises will be blessed. All who trust in Him, chiefly His promise to send His Son to save us from our sin. I wonder, are, are you blessed today? Are you blessed? Do you, do you know how, how you be blessed? Verse 45, you believe the promises of God. Believe 
that like Elizabeth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe that Jesus went to a cross after living a perfect life and died there to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. Believe that three days later, physically, historically, bodily, He got up from the dead. Believe that you are a sinner as I am and our only hope is found in Christ. You believe that, you'll be blessed. Abundantly blessed. Blessed because God will keep His promises that He has made. Promises to forgive your sin and come to your aid and never leave your side. Promises to supply your need and rule for your good and answer your prayers. Blessed because you'll be given rest from your weariness and peace from turmoil and escape from temptation. He he will never condemn you. He will transform you. He will return for you. He will give you eternal life and a place of eternal joy as you delight in His eternal love. This and and thousands of more blessings He will give to those who believe in Him. Do you believe in Him? That's all one must do in order to be blessed by God. It is not fix your life. It is not be a good person. It is not have righteous works to present before Him. It is simply to trust in Him and what He has done. I invite you to trust in Christ today, as did Elizabeth, as did Mary. In fact, in response to all this, we already noted in verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And Mary begins to sing. And there's this wonderful transformation that takes place in Mary's heart. Now notice that she did not rejoice when Gabriel brought her these, this news. But she submitted, but she didn't sing. But then she comes to Elizabeth and she talks with Elizabeth and now she begins to praise God for what he's done. So my question is, why does she sing after Elizabeth's words? and not after Gabriel's words. Well, I wonder if it's because there is a role for the community of faith in our life. I wonder if there's a role, if you will, for the church. And it is through the the church, through Elizabeth, through her sister, that she was able to find help in following God and understanding God and working out her struggles. I mean, Mary had this amazing quiet time all by herself. Right? An angel showed up. I don't know when the last time an angel showed up when you were having a quiet time. In fact, I don't even want to know, so don't answer that question. Right? But an angel comes, and she has this incredible experience with God, and yet she does not rejoice at that time. It's not enough. And she comes and seeks out a, a, a faith community, and then she begins to understand. Then she begins to rejoice. I think it's for this reason Gabriel actually sends her. You need to go work this out with the, the one person that understands. And she does. And she gets it. And she gets clarity and release and joy. And she begins to sing the, the first Christmas carol ever sung. You want to know how you sing at Christmas? How you are able to worship with joy in the midst of hardship and difficulty? Well, you need the community of faith in which God has given you. You need deep and robust relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Mary doesn't understand. She's struggling until she gets into fellowship with, the, with other people. And then she begins to understand. Then she finds the Lord in that community. So often the word from God that we need is going to come from a brother's lips. The p- missing piece of the puzzle that we need is going to come from a sister's mouth. C.S. Lewis once talked about, or often talked about, this group of, of brothers that he had in the faith. There were four of them. And there's like this very strong and incredible fraternity of men. And they just met together all the time and sang together and prayed together and searched God's scripture together. Finally, one of them died. Charles Williams died. And C.S. Lewis realized that not only did he not, not simply lose Charles. He said, when Charles died, I didn't just lose Charles. I lost the part of Ronald that only Charles brought out. 
In other words, I don't know Ronald like I used to because Charles is not there to help me know Ronald. And Lewis would go on to say, personality is so rich and, and amazing that one person does not bring it out of all of us. And so that's true for us. How much truer is it for God himself that, that, that you cannot know God fully, isolated by yourself? That, that, that it's in the community of faith that your brothers and sisters help you to see aspects of the glory of Jesus that you simply miss. And so she came to Elizabeth. In fact, she stayed with her, according to verse 56, for three months. And Mary remained with her three months and returned home. I don't know what they did together. I trust they probably searched the scripture. I trust they prayed together. I trust they're maybe making baby blankets and sharing together. I mean, what if Mary said, you know, I just want to be alone. I just need to deal with this alone. We wouldn't have got this song, which she's about to sing. The Magnificent which is simply the Latin word for magnifies, which is the first one there, or verse 46, her first verse in her song. And so let's listen to this song from a teenage girl. And in doing so, we learn about our God and and our worship of him and the joy that we should find in it. In fact, Luke gives us four nativity songs. Luke loves to link Christmas, if you will, with singing, as I think... It is good and right for us. You're going to notice, perhaps, that Mary in this song is going to allude to Scripture. She'll allude to the book of Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now, she's not going to quote Scripture. This seems to be a spontaneous song. But what's going to come out of her mouth are allusions to various passages of Scripture. In other words, Mary is so steeped in Scripture that when she breaks out and prays, she praises God with the very words that he has first given her. It is a great admonition for us, therefore, to strive to fill our minds and our hearts with God's Word so that we can fill our mouths with God's Word when we praise Him. You could roughly divide this song into two halves. There's a number of ways in which you can organize it. One way is break it in half. The first half is Mary praising God about what he's done for me. And then she begins to praise God for what he has done for others. And that's very clear. You see the early verses of her song. She says, my spirit, my soul, he has looked on me and so forth. And then once we get to verse 50, it talks about his mercy. He has shown, he has scattered, he has brought, etc. And so she begins to sing about, about him about what he's done for me, what he's done for others. This Christmas carol, well, you will find, is the most unsentimental Christmas carol that you will ever perhaps encounter. There is no lowing cattle or figgy pudding or roasting chestnuts in her song. This is a 13-year-old girl who's singing about the might and the mercy and the faithfulness of her Savior. And she tells us that we should praise him because he is the Savior. It's the second reason we should praise God. He is the Savior, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She says, I want to magnify Him. I want to make Him look good. Not that, he, that, that He's not good. She's not making Him bigger. He's just too small in her mind, in other people's minds. And so she says, I want to enlarge my vision of God. And she wants to do that in her soul. My soul magnifies God. My spirit rejoices in God. You see, true worship comes from our heart. It is not external. Worship is not listening to a choir or sitting under a sermon or participating in an offering. Worship is not simply praying or singing or even taking the Lord's Supper. Those are all functions of worship. 
But the Bible tells us, according to the prophet Isaiah, God said, draw near, they draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. In other words, it sounds like worship, it looks like worship, but it's not worship. I mention this because you and I can get preoccupied with Jesus all Christmas season long and miss worshiping Him. It must come from our heart, from our soul. And Mary says, my soul is active here. In fact, my spirit is rejoicing. The bigger God is, the more I magnify Him, the more joy I find in Him. These are not simply a few nice thoughts of God. This is an eruption of joy that leads to this praise and adoration. I think you would know, notice this link here in these two verses, 46 and 47, with the link between magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. You see, what Mary's teaching us here is that we, we magnify what we enjoy. We exalt in what brings us joy. I don't know what brings you joy, what brings you delight. I hope God is on that list. I hope there's many things, but I hope God is on that list. I, I hope God is on the top of that list. Mary, it's top of Mary's list, evidently. I think, I think churches are filled with men, even today, throughout this country, filled with men sitting through worship services, unmoved by the songs that are sung and unmoved by the Scripture that is proclaimed, perhaps they're out of respect for their wife or someone else. There's nothing going on in their heart. They're just waiting for it to be over. But they get home in the afternoon, the grandkids come over. Oh, there's joy there. Or their team... Bunch of grown men running around in tights score a touchdown and they will leap off the couch with their arms thrust high. There's joy there. I'll do silly things like that as well, but I hope our joy is found in the Lord. Churches, by the way, are also filled with women who will search online for hours for sales and won't spend 15 minutes in prayer speaking to God about the surpassing glory of sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to save them from eternal damnation. Mary rejoices in God. She finds her joy in God, who is, by the way, according to verse 47, you see this, my Savior. Notice Mary does not refer to him as the Savior, but as my Savior. I would wish that could settle once for all, that Mary, like you and like I, is in need of a Savior. Now, why do we need a Savior? Because we're sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Our sister Mary is a sinner. Now, many people think that they don't need God to save them. They need God to help them or to work His magic on us and make our dreams come true or maybe give us a little help in life. But Mary, she wasn't after that. She says, I need to be saved. In fact, she links God, her Savior, with her humility. You note verse 48, For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. You see, Mary understands that she's humble. Now, undoubtedly, her humility here is linked with her obscurity, her poverty, and the unimaginable blessing in which God has given her. And she's right. All generations should call her blessed. I think us Protestants can learn from our Roman Catholic friends that we would do right to honor honor Mary. As she says, all generations shall call me blessed. But I want you to notice the link between God being her Savior at the end of verse 47 and verse 48, her humble estate. 
See, her humility is just not her obscurity, but it is her, her desperate need of salvation. Mary knows that she needs to be saved. In fact, before you can be saved, you need to recognize you need to be saved. You need to be humble and broken and lowly. Jesus himself would say in Luke 18, the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus responded by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. You see, there's a humility in receiving Christ as your Savior. There's a humility in worshiping Him. The humble worship God. The proud are too busy worshiping themselves, thinking about themselves. It is not so for Mary. I rejoice that my sister here did not see this as an occasion to build herself up. Well, wasn't I a good choice? She might have thought. Right? She, you, you, she might have thought, well, you know, the mother of my Lord, I, I knew I was devout, but I didn't realize I was that good. God obviously sees something in me that I didn't even know was there. I mean, we like to talk about ourselves, don't we? We like to spread our successes. I'm as guilty as anyone. Every time I tell a backpacking story, I'll tell you the mountains get higher and the, the weather gets colder and the lightning's closer and the bears emerge and I get faster and it all gets very exciting. We like to build ourselves up. Mary, I just had that temptation and yet her initial reaction is not my soul magnifies myself. Oh, my soul magnifies my God, my Savior. He has saved me. See, only people like Mary and Elizabeth magnify the Lord. They realize they're lowly and humble, and they become overwhelmed with the salvation God has offered. Maybe you have trouble praising God because you're not saved. Those who are saved, those who are truly saved, will worship Him, will praise Him, will find joy in Him. I wonder, have you ever personally said yes to Jesus? You personally said yes to Jesus' offer to save you, to be your Savior. Have you ever bowed that knee to Him and said, I belong to you. You are my God and my King. Save me. He would do so this very moment, change your eternity forever. He's my Savior. He's Mary's Savior. Is He your Savior? For those of us who He is our Savior, we ought to praise Him because He has saved us. Well, Mary goes on and says that we need to praise Him because He is mighty. Number three. Note verse 49. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name. And so she says, my God is mighty. He has done mighty things for me. He has done the impossible for me. In fact, she now carries the Son of God in her womb. But you notice in verse 51, she begins to talk about the mighty things that God has done for others. He has shown the strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. And Mary here thinks about all the mighty and the proud and the powerful and all those who sit upon the throne and declares that her son will scatter them all. That her son will overthrow them all. Now remember, in her day, it's Caesar who has all power, and, and Herod who is king of Judea, and Rome whose empire stretches everywhere. And she is in sense saying, yes, Caesar has a throne, a small little cute throne, but he ought to be aware of my boy, because my son is going to turn the world upside down, and he will overthrow any king, it doesn't matter how mighty he is, who does not recognize my son as the king of kings. And that's big talk for a teenage girl. Right? She's trash talking here. Right? 
She said, beware world of my son. He is not to be treated lightly. Her son would become the world's most dangerous baby. And she understands it. He's going to overthrow those who sit upon their thrones. Now, many have debated, is she speaking historically or prophetically? Is this what God has done or is this what God will do? Well, certainly, I think we could look historically. He's certainly done this. We think Nebuchadnezzar. We think Pharaoh. We think Haman. One of my favorite stories is when the armies of the Medes and the Persians were ravaging the empires of the world and they took their armies and they camped out at the gates of Babylon and there King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, decided this would be a good time to have a feast with total disregard of his enemies because he was powerful and his gates were impregnable and his supplies inexhaustible, he decided to throw this drunken party. And what better way to toast his pagan gods than to use the golden goblets stolen from the Jewish temple. And there in his great arrogance, he lifts up and toasts his pagan deities. And one commentator describes the scene saying, Revelry gave way to deadly silence punctuated by terror-stricken moans when a bodiless hand wrote solemn words of judgment on a plaster wall. The effect was dramatic. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The King James says the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. One minute Belshazzar was leading a defiant, blasphemous cheer. The next moment he was a wobbling, fainting coward. Immediately Daniel was summoned in, wasn't he? And without fear he translated those words, your kingdom is divided given to the Persians and the Medes. The Bible tells us that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. What happened to his close advisor, Daniel? Was he killed along with the rest? No, of course not. The new king made uh, Daniel, new king Darius made Daniel his chief administrator of his new kingdom. As Mary has sung, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. But you may say, wait a second, there are still tyrants ruling. There are still people proud and arrogant sitting upon their thrones. We thought about the, 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 the plight of the persecuted church earlier this month. What about those tyrants? What about those people? We need to understand that there is one throne and that one day Jesus will sit upon it and all dictators and rulers and the high and mighty will come off their thrones and they will be on their knees before King Jesus. Jesus himself would say, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Today is the day of repentance, but when Christ comes, that opportunity will no longer be afforded. I don't know if you've ever been humiliated with, by people with power. I don't know if you've ever been abused by a spouse or a father walk out on you. Maybe you're cheated on, betrayed, lied about. I tell you, based upon God's word, those who refuse to repent of their sin are in for a very troubling time. For the arm of God is against them. God is mighty. And he is not simply mighty when things go well in your life. He is mighty all the time. He is mighty over your finances, whether they're good or bad, your health, your comfort, your job. And if we would believe that, we would stop worrying so much and start worshiping. Perhaps we need to fill our mind with the greatness of God. I wonder when's the last time you read a gospel. Just sat down and I'm going to read the gospel of Luke this week. It'll take you 15 minutes a day. By the end of the week, you'll be done filling your mind, feasting upon the mighty works of Jesus Christ. Our God is mighty. He ought to be worshipped. 
Number four, she says we should praise him because he is merciful. He's not only mighty, but he's merciful. Note verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. When the Bible speaks of God's mercy, it refers to that he does not repay us according to what we deserve. And that God is a merciful God. In fact, she tells us who his mercy is for. You notice it's not for everyone. It's not universal mercy, but it is mercy for those, according to verse 50, who fear him who trust in Him, who are in awe of Him, who are rightly related to Him. His, his mercy is for those. In fact, Mary says He's been merciful to me, but, but I'm not alone in this mercy. His mercy is for generation to generation. And it's at this point that Mary kind of widens the focus of her song. It's just not about me and God, she says. Perhaps she recalls that Gabriel said, your son's going to rule on the throne of David forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And she begins to think and to worship God for the mercy which he extends to other people, the grace for others. Grace for others ought to conjure up joy in your heart. Not just grace for you, but grace for other people. It ought to bring out worship and delight in you. So often our joy is just is narcissistic. I mean, what I mean by that is if life is good for me, I'm filled with joy. If things are easy for me, I'm filled with joy. But if things go bad, I just pull the covers over my head and, and I'm just going to moan and it's a self-pity party. And we ought to praise God for what He has done for us when His mercy comes on, on us. But we ought to worship God for what He has done for other people. At times we come into life where we have difficult seasons. Our, sick, our health is not good. Our finances are not good. But certainly God is being merciful on others, those you love, those you cherish. Consider what God is doing in their life that you might worship Him and find delight in Him as Mary does. This is why we need the church, to hear what God is doing in other people's lives. Not just my life, but what is God doing in yours? How is He changing you? How is He blessing you? How is He being merciful to you? So often the sad are isolated. And what they do is they isolate themselves from the works of God, which God would magnify Himself in their heart if they would behold it. In fact, so she she speaks of God's mercy and then she gets more specific there in verse 52 when she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. She she mentions really two groups of people there. The rich, she says there, and I don't think she means just people who are wealthy. I think she means the greedy. Remember, it's a rich man who's paying for this book, right? Who's seeking after Jesus, Theophilus. But these are people who worship their possessions and their status. Their wealth is for them. They have no thought of others. She says there's the rich that he will send away empty, just like the proud. But the hungry he will fill with good things. The poor will receive his blessing. In the kingdom to come, you know, the hungry will be fed. The poor will be housed. The needy will be cared for. And yet the kingdom is here. Christ has brought the kingdom. He's left us here to begin to care for the poor and to feed the hungry. We work on behalf of our Lord and our neighbors and and the nations as our God has done. Our God is merciful. I don't know if you you look at the life of Jesus and you see this constant flow of mercy. It's almost like Jesus, for Jesus, mercy is a reflex to him. It's just just who he is. He's merciful. Remember that story when the the woman comes up, she grabs the hem of his garment and and she's healed of her, her issue of blood? And Jesus stops the, the parade and says, wait a second, who just touched me? I felt power come out from me. And, and we th- this is the omnipotent God who's saying this. And it's almost like, oops, I just healed somebody. Right? And it's amazing to me. It's like a reflex that he has, that he wants to be a blessing to others, that he wants to pour out mercy upon them. And this is who our God is. He, he wants to do this. He wants to do it through you and I. But when she speaks of the hungry and the rich, I think she's also referring to spiritual realities. I think she's referring to a spiritual hunger that God will satisfy. 
a spiritual need, a, a spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus would say. And, and I think it's those who are broken and understand that who will seek after Christ and find his mercy. This is who God is. He's a merciful God. He's a merciful to the lowly, to the poor. I think Mary is helping us understand that to avoid the mistake, perhaps, that we might conclude that because God is mighty and great, that he's partial to great people. And we are partial to great people. They're on our television. We read about them in magazines. We have this whole celebrity focus. We even, it's even in Christianity. But God's not partial to great people. He's partial to those who trust him, the lowly, the humble, the poor. I like the story of a man named Meredith who was wandering, a wandering scholar in the Middle Ages. He was poor, vow, taken a vow of poverty, and he got very sick in one of his wanderings, and he was taken to a hospital for strays, for, for immigrants. And there a doctor spoke to another doctor about his case right there at his hospital bed. And they spoke in Latin, realizing that no worthless wanderer can understand the language of education. And they began to debate which medical experiments they should try on them. They had no intention to try to heal him. They want, just simply want to experiment with him. And Moratus looked up to his doctors and answered in Latin, Call no man worthless for whom Christ has died. Right? He is a God after the humble, the poor. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. This is a a, a song that Mary gives us of warning and salvation. Declare, my son will defend the poor, the widow, the weak, the oppressed, and women like me. We have a real king in Jesus. We ought to praise him because of it. Well, lastly and quickly, she says we need to praise him because he is faithful. You see that in verse 55. He helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He remembered what he had said. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, he told Father Abraham, to all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. It's been thousands of years since he said that. His people are living in captivity. And I trust many wondered, are those promises still valid? Does God still remember? Has he forgotten? And Mary says, no, he has not forgotten. He remembers what he says. My God has not forgotten his people. You need to understand that. He will never forget you. I don't know if, if, even if you forsake him or defile him or walk away from him, he will never forget you. He will never stop looking for you. He will never give up on you. He is faithful, she says. Is there any promises in which God has made that which he will forget? No, he will keep every one. He is merciful. Is there anyone who came to him with a single need, anyone, that he turned away? He is mighty. Is there any fear, anything we fear he cannot fix? Is there any sickness he cannot cure, any demon he cannot command, any storm he cannot still or grave he cannot empty, anything he cannot overcome? Friends, he is Savior. Has there ever been a single person who has sought him for salvation that he has rejected? Has he said, no, not you? As the dying thief on the cross not tell us that there is no one beyond his reach. He is Lord forever and therefore is to be praised forever. Will you praise him? 
Will you praise Him this Christmas season? Will you spend time with Him? Will you seek after Him? Will you rejoice in Him like Mary? Will you magnify the Lord in your soul? Father, we ask that You would help us to praise You and to exalt You, for You have done great and wonderful things through Your Son. You have have brought mercy and might and power. You have remembered Your promises. You have come to save us. This is a room filled with sinners saved by the mercy of our Lord God, Jesus Christ, who is rich in grace and seeks to save. The Son of Man came to this earth to seek and to save the lost. His name is Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. We rejoice that our Lord is a Savior. Thank You for our salvation. Thank you that you are our Lord forever and rule with might and mercy and faithfulness. Help it to fill our hearts with joy no matter what buffets us this season, no matter what concerns we carry, that we would find ways to praise you, that we would set our mind on our God and eternal matters, that your promises would be manna from the sky, that your promises would be water of life, that we would drink this Christmas season, that we might rightly worship you for the God you are. Help us to be worshipers. And I pray for my friend here this morning that does not worship you because they do not know you. You are not their Savior. They have not given their life to You. I pray even by Your Holy Spirit now, Father, You would convince them that they need not fix their life to come to You. You are a God rich in grace and that You would forgive anyone in this room this very moment, offering them eternal life, adoption into Your family, if they in their soul would bow their knee to You saying, I believe you, Jesus, are the Son of God, the Lord's Son, that you have come and died for my sin. You have paid my price, paid my penalty, and you rose from the dead, and I give you my life today and forevermore. If they would just, from their heart, call out to you, their eternity would be changed. Send your spirit even now, Father. Work in their life. If they would call out to you today that they would find someone, maybe someone they came with, maybe me or another elder, and they would declare, I gave my life to Jesus today. What, what do I need to do now? What, what's, what, what goes on now? Help them, Father, not to keep this private, but to seek after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.